traveling through another dimension. A dimension not only of sight and sound, but of mind. A journey into a wondrous land whose boundaries are that of imagination. That's the signpost up ahead. Your next stop, the Twilight Zone. have been listening to the podcast for a while will recall that it wasn't that long ago that I had a guest on the podcast, a guest by the name of Brandy Jacola. Now she's a great podcaster in her own right and she hosts a podcast called The Inside Out Cast over at geekplanetonline.com and she'd done a wonderful reading of the story Brothers Beyond the Void. I think it's a great way of getting other voices onto the podcast. I always had in my head another person who I'd love to get on as well, and that's a gentleman by the name of Jim Moon. Now, Jim hosts a podcast called Hypnobobs. I hesitate to call it a horror podcast because Jim can sometimes mix things up really well and choose different topics, but I guess it's fair to say it has a horror slant. But it's also a very relaxing podcast if you... If you've got a busy life and you like to just unwind and listen to a nice voice on a good podcast, then I really recommend Hypnobobs. And the best way to find it is to go to hypnagoria.blogspot.com. Now, Jim often does readings of stories and so on. And like I say, they're often ghost stories. I, I don't recall if he's ever done a sort of science fiction one. But when I saw this story was uh, in the public domain and it's perfectly legal to to go to Project Gutenberg and, and check out the story for yourself. I thought this would be a good one for Jim to read and I really wanted to hear him do it. So submitted for your approval is Jim Moon reading Elegy by Charles Beaumont. The time is the day after tomorrow. The place, a far corner of the universe. The cast of characters, three men lost amongst the stars. Three men sharing the common urgency of all men lost. They're looking for home. And in a moment, they'll find home. Not a home that is a place to be seen, but a strange, unexplainable experience to be felt. Elegy by Charles Beaumont Would you mind repeating that? I said, sir, that Mr. Fridden said, sir, that he sees a city. A city? Yes, sir. Captain Webber rubbed the back of his hand along his cheek. You realise, of course, that that is impossible. Yes, sir. Said Mr. Fridden to see me at once. The young man saluted and rushed out of the room. He returned with a somewhat older man who wore spectacles and frowned. Now then, said Captain Webber, what's all this Lieutenant Peterson tells me about a city? Are you enjoying a private joke, Fridden? Mr. Fridden shook his head emphatically. No, sir. Then perhaps you'd like to explain. Well, sir, you see, I was getting bored, and just for something to do, I, I thought I'd look through the screen. Not that I dreamed of seeing anything. The instruments weren't adjusted either. But there was something funny. Something I couldn't make out exactly. Go on, said Captain Webber patiently. So I fixed up the instruments and took another look. 
And there it was, sir, plain as could be. There what was? The city, sir. Oh, I couldn't tell much about it. But there were houses, all right. A lot of them. Houses, you say? Yes, sir. On an asteroid. Captain Webber looked for a long moment at Mr. Fridden and began to pace nervously. I take it you know what this might mean? Yes, sir, I do. That's why I wanted Lieutenant Peterson to tell you about it. I believe, Fridden, that before we do any more talking, I'll see this city for myself. Captain Webber, Lieutenant Peterson, and Mr. Fridden walked from the room down a long corridor to a smaller room. Captain Webber put his eye to a circular glass and tapped his foot. He stepped back and rubbed his cheek again. Well, you were right. That is a city, or else we've all gone crazy. Do you think we have? I don't know, sir. It's not impossible. Lieutenant, go ask Mr. Milton if he can land us on an asteroid. Give him all the details and be back in ten minutes. Captain Webber sighed. Whatever it is, he said, it will be a relief. Although I never made a special announcement, I suppose you knew that we were lost. Oh, yes, sir, and that we ran almost entirely out of fuel several months ago. In fact, shortly after we left, we knew that. The men were silent. Sir, Mr. Milton says he thinks he can land us, but he can't promise exactly where. Tell Mr. Milton that's good enough. Captain Webber waited for the young man to leave, then looked again into the glass. What do you make of it, sir? Not much, Fridden, not much. It's a city, and that's an asteroid, but how the devil they got there is beyond me. I still haven't left the idea we're crazy, you know. Mr. Fridden looked. We're positioning to land. Strange. What is it? I can make things out a bit more clearly now, sir. Those are Earth houses. Captain Webber looked. He blinked. Now that, he said, is impossible. Look here, we've been floating about in space for... How long is it? Three months, sir. Exactly. For three months we've been bobbing aimlessly, millions of miles from Earth. No hope. No hope whatsoever. And now we're landing in a city just like the one we first left. Or almost like it. Fridden, I ask you, does that make any sense at all? No, sir. And does it seem logical that there should be an asteroid where no asteroid should be? It does not. They stared at the glass by turns. Do you see that, Fridden? I'm afraid so, sir. A lake. A lake and a house by it. And trees. Tell me, how many of us are left? Mr. Fridden held up his right hand and began unbending fingers. Yourself, sir? And myself? Lieutenant Peterson, Mr. Chitterwick, Mr. Goblin, Mr. Milton, and... Great Scott, out of thirty men! You know how it was, sir. That business with the Martians, and then our own difficulties. Yes, our own difficulties. Isn't it ironic somehow, Fridden? We band together and fly away from war, and no sooner were we off the Earth that we begin other wars. I've often felt that if Appleton hadn't been so aggressive with that gun, we would have never been kicked off Mars. And why did we have to laugh at them? 
Oh, I'm afraid I haven't been a very successful captain. You're in the mood, sir. Am I? I suppose I am. Look, there's a farm. An actual farm. Not really. Why? I haven't seen one for twenty years. The door flew open, and Lieutenant Peterson came in panting. Mr. Milton checked off every instruction, sir. We're going down now. He's sure we've enough fuel left for the break? He thinks so, sir. Lieutenant Peterson? Yes, sir. Come and look into this glass, will you? The young man looked. What do you see? A lot of strange creatures, sir. Are they dangerous? Shall we prepare our weapons? How old are you, Lieutenant? Nineteen, Captain Webber. You have just seen a herd of cows. For the most part, Captain Webber squinted and twirled knobs. Holsteins. Holsteins, sir? You may go. Oh, you might tell the others to prepare for a crash landing. Straps and that. The young man smiled faintly and left. I'm a little frightened, Fridden. I think I'll go to my cabin. Take charge and have them wait for my orders. Captain Webber saluted tiredly and walked back down the long corridor. He paused as the machines suddenly roared more life. He rubbed his cheek and went into the small room. Cows, said Captain Webber, bracing himself. The fiery leg fell into the cool air, heating it, causing it to smoke. It burnt into the green grass and licked a craterous hole. There were fire flags and fire sparks, hisses and explosions, and the weary groaning sound of a great beast suddenly roused from sleep. The rocket landed. It grumbled and muttered for a while on its finny tripod, then was silent. Soon, the heat vanished also. Are you all right, sir? Yes. The rest? All but Mr. Chitterwick. He broke his glasses and says he can't see. Captain Webber swung himself erect and tested his limbs. Very well then, Lieutenant. Has the atmosphere been checked? The air is pure and fit to breathe, sir. Instruct the others to drop the ladder. Yes, sir. A door in the side of the rocket opened laboriously, and men began climbing out. Look, said Mr. Milton, pointing. There are trees and grass, and over there little bridges going over the water. He pointed to a row of small white houses with green gardens and stony paths. Beyond the trees was a brick lodge, extended over a rivulet which foamed and bubbled. Fishing poles protruded from the lodge window. And there, to the right, a steel building thirty stories high, with a pink cloud near the top, and separated by a hedge, a brown tent with a barbecue pit before it, smoke rising in a rigid ribbon from the chimney. Mr. Chitterwick blinked and squinted his eyes. What do you see? Distant and near, houses of stone and brick and wood, painted all colours, small, large, and further, golden fields of wheat, each blown by a different breeze in a different direction. I don't believe it, said Captain Webber. It's a park, millions of miles away from where a park could possibly be. Strange, but familiar, said Lieutenant Peterson, picking up a rock. Captain Webber looked in all directions. We were lost. Then we see a city where no city should be, on an asteroid not shown on any chart, and we manage to land. 
and now we're in the middle of a place that belongs in history records. We may be crazy. We may all be wandering round in space and dreaming. The little man with the thin hair, who had just stepped briskly from a tree clump, said, Well, well. And the men jumped. The little man smiled. Aren't you a trifle late or early or something? Captain Webber turned round and his mouth dropped open. I hadn't been expecting you gentlemen to be perfectly honest. The little man clucked. Then, oh dear, see what you've done to Mr. Belifonte's park. I do hope you haven't hurt him. No, I see that he's all right. Captain Webber followed the direction of the man's eyes and perceived an old man with red hair seated at the base of a tree, apparently reading a book. We're from Earth, said Captain Webber. Yes, yes. Let me explain. My name is Webber. These are my men. Of course, said the little man. Mr. Chitterwick came closer, blinking. Who is this that knows our language? He asked. Who? Greypool. Mr. Greypool. Didn't they tell you? Then you are also from Earth? Heavens, yes. But now, let's go where we can chat more comfortably. Mr. Greypool struck down a small path past scorched trees and underbrush. You know, Captain, right after the last consignment, something happened to my calendar. Now I'm competent at my job, but I'm no technician. No, indeed. Besides, no doubt you or one of your men can set the doodah right, eh? Here we are. They walked onto a wooden porch and through a door with a wire screen. Lieutenant Peterson first, then Captain Webber, Mr. Fridden, and the rest of the crew. Mr. Greypool followed. You must forgive me. It's been a while. Take chairs. There, there. Now, what news of home, shall I say? The little man stared. Captain Webber shifted uncomfortably. He glanced round the room at the lace curtains, the needlepoint tapestries, and the lavender wallpaper. Mr. Greypool, I'd like to ask some questions. Certainly, certainly. But first, this being an occasion... The little man stared at each man carefully, then shook his head. Ah, do you all like wine? Good wine? He ducked through a small door. Captain Webber exhaled and rose. Now don't all start talking at once, he whispered. Anyone have any ideas? No? Then quickly, scout around. Fridden, you stay here. You others, see what you can find. I'm not sure I like the look of this. The men left the room. Mr. Chitterwick made his way along a hedgerow, feeling cautiously and maintaining a delicate balance. When he came to a doorway, he stopped, squinted, and entered. The room was dark and quiet and odorous. Mr. Chitterwick groped a few steps, put out his hand, and encountered what seemed to be raw flesh. He swiftly withdrew his hand. Excuse, he said, then, oh, as his face came against a slab of moist red meat. Oh, my! Mr. Chitterwick began to tremble, and he blinked furiously, reaching out and finding flesh, cold and hard, unidentifiable. When he stepped upon the toe of a large man with a walrus moustache, he wheeled, located the sunlight, and ran from the butcher's shop. 
The door of the temple opened with difficulty, which caused Mr. Milton to breathe unnaturally. Then, once inside, he gasped. Row upon row of people, their fingers outstretched, lips open but immobile and silent, their bodies prostrate on the floor. And upon a strange black altar, a tiny woman with silver hair and a long thyrus in her right hand, nothing stirred but the mosaic squares in the walls. The colors danced here, otherwise everything was frozen, everything was solid. Even the air hung suspended, stationary. Mr. Milton left the temple. There was a table, and a woman on the table, and people all round the woman on the table. Mr. Goblin did not go a great distance from the doorway. He rubbed his eyes and stared. It was an operating room. There were all the instruments, some old, most old, and the masked men and women with shining scissors and glistening saws in their hands. And up above the students' aperture, filled seats, filled aisles. Mr. Goblin put his other hand about the doorknob. A large man stood over the recumbent figure, his lusterless eyes regarding the crimson puce incision, but he did not move. The nurses did not move, or the students. No one moved, especially the smiling middle-aged woman on the table. Mr. Goblin moved. Hello, said Lieutenant Peterson, after he had searched through eight long aisles of books. Hello, he pointed his gun menacingly. There were many books with many titles, and they had a fine grey dust about them. Lieutenant Peterson paused to examine a bulky volume, when he happened to look above him. Who are you? he demanded. The mottled, angular man, perched atop the ladder, did not respond. He clutched a book and looked at the book, and not at Lieutenant Peterson. Come down! I want to talk to you! The man on the ladder did nothing unusual. He remained precisely as he had been. Lieutenant Peterson climbed up the ladder, scowling. He reached the man and jabbed with a finger. Lieutenant Peterson looked into the eyes of the reading man and descended hastily and did not say goodbye. Mr. Greypool re-entered the living room with a tray of glasses. This is apricot wine, he announced, distributing the glasses. But where are the others? Out for a walk? Ah, well, they can drink theirs later. Incidentally, Captain, how many guests did you bring? Last time it was only twelve. Not an extraordinary shipment either. They all preferred the ordinary things. All but Mrs. Dominguez. Dear me, she was worth the carload herself. Wanted a zoo. Can you imagine a regular zoo with her put right in the birdhouse? Oh, they had a time putting that one up. Mr. Greypool chuckled and sipped his drink. It's people like Mrs. Dominguez who put the, uh, the life into happy glades. Oh, do you find that disrespectful? Captain Webber shook his head and tossed down his drink. Mr. Greypool leaned back in his chair and crossed a leg. Ah, he continued, you have no idea how good this is. Once in a while, it does get lonely for me here. No man is an island, or how does it go? Why, I can't even remember when Mr. Waldemere first told me of this idea. A grave responsibility, he said. 
A grave responsibility. Mr. Waldemere had a keen sense of humour, needless to say. Captain Webber looked out of the window. A small child on roller skates stood still on the sidewalk. Mr. Graypool laughed. Finished your wine? Good. Explanations are in order. Though first, perhaps you'd care to join me in a brief turn about the premises. Fine. Fridden, you stay here and wait for the men. Captain Webber winked a number of times and frowned briefly. Then he and Mr. Graypool walked out onto the porch and down the steps. Mr. Fridden drummed his fingers upon the arm of a chair, surveyed his empty glass and hiccuped softly. I do wish you'd landed your ship elsewhere, Captain. Mr. Bellifont was quite particular and as you can see, his park is hopelessly disfigured. We were given no choice, I'm afraid. The fuel was running out. Indeed. Well then, that explains everything. A beautiful day, don't you find, sir? Fortunately, with the exception of Professor Carling, all guests prefer good weather. Plenty of sunshine, they said, or crisp evening. It helps. They walked towards a house of coloured rocks. Miss Daphne Trillings, said Mr. Greypool, gesturing. They threw it up in a day, though it's solid enough. When they had passed an elderly woman on a bicycle, Captain Webber stopped walking. Mr. Greypool, we've got to have a talk. Mr. Greypool shrugged and pointed, and they went into an office building, which was crowded with motionless men, women and children. Since I'm so mixed up myself, the captain said, maybe I'd better ask, just who do you think we are? I thought you'd be the men from the Glades, of course. I don't have the slightest idea what you're talking about. We're from the planet Earth. They were going to have another war. The last war, they said. And we escaped in that rocket and started off for Mars. But something went wrong. Fellow named Appleton pulled a gun. Just didn't like the Martians. We needn't go into it. They wouldn't have us, so Mars didn't work out. Something else went wrong then. Soon we were lost with only a little store of fuels and supplies. Then Mr. Fridden noticed this city or whatever it is. And we had enough fuel to land, so we landed. Mr. Greypool nodded his head slowly, somehow sadder than before. I see. You say there was a war on Earth? They were going to set off X-bombs. When they do, Everything will go to pieces. Or everything has already. What dreadful news. May I inquire, Captain, when you have learned where you are, what do you intend to do? Why, live here, of course. No, no. Try to understand. You could not conceivably fit in here with us. Captain Webber glanced at the motionless people. Why not? Then he shouted, What is this place? Where am I? Mr. Graypool smiled. Captain, you're in a cemetery. Good work, Peterson. Thanks, sir. When we all got back and Fridden didn't know where you'd gone, well, we got worried. Then we heard you shouting. Hold his arms there. You heard this, Fridden. Mr. Fridden was trembling slightly. He brushed past a man with a Van Dyke beard and sat down on a leather stool. Yes, sir, I did. 
That is, I think I did. What shall we do with him? I don't know yet. Take him away, Lieutenant. I want to think for a bit. We'll talk to Mr. Greypool later on. Lieutenant Peterson pulled the smiling little man out into the street and pointed a gun at him. Mr. Chitterwick blinked into the face of a small child. Man's insane, I guess, said Mr. Milton, pacing. Yes, but what about all this? Mr. Goblin looked horrified at the stationary people. I think I can tell you, Mr. Fridden said. Take a look, Captain. The men crowded round a pamphlet which Mr. Fridden had placed on the stool. Towards the top of the pamphlet, and in the centre of the first page, was a photograph, untinted and solemn. It depicted a white cherub, delicately poised on a granite slab. Beneath the photograph were the words, Happy Glades. Captain Webber turned the pages and mumbled, glancing over his shoulder every once in a while. What is it, sir? asked Mr. Chitterwick of a frozen man in a blue suit with copper buttons. It's one of those old level cemeteries, cried Mr. Milton. I remember seeing pictures like it, sir. Captain Webber read aloud from the pamphlet. For fifty years, he began, an outstanding cultural and spiritual asset to this community. Happy Glades is proud to announce yet another innovation in its program of post-benefits. You can now enjoy the afterlife in surroundings which suggest the here and now. Never before in history has scientific advancement allowed such a plan. Captain Webber turned the page. For those who prefer that their late departed have really permanent eternal happiness, for those who are dismayed by the fragility of all things mortal, we of Happy Glades are proud to offer 1. The permanent duplication of physical conditions identical to those enjoyed by the departed on Earth. Park, playground, lodge, office building, hotel or house, etc. may be secured at varying prices. All workmanship and materials specially attuned to the conditions on Asteroid K7 and guaranteed for permanence. 2. Permanent conditioning of the late beloved so that in the midst of surroundings he favoured, a genuine eternity may be assured. 3. Full details on Happy Glade's newest property, Asteroid K7, may be found on page 4. The captain tossed the pamphlet to the floor and lit a cigarette. Did anyone happen to notice the date? Mr. Milton said, It doesn't make any sense. There haven't been cemeteries for ages. And even this were true, why should anyone want to go all the way through space to a little asteroid? They might as well have just built these things on Earth. Who would want this when they're dead anyway? You mean these people are dead? For a few moments, there was complete and utter silence in the lobby of the building. Are those things true that we read in your booklet? Asked Captain Webber, after Lieutenant Peterson had brought in the prisoner. Every word, said the little man bowing slightly, is monumentally correct. Then we want you to begin explaining. Mr. Greypool tushed and proceeded to straighten the coat of a middle-aged man with a cigar. Mr. Goblin shuddered. No, no, laughed Mr. Greypool. These are only imitations. 
Mr Conklin upstairs was head of a large firm, absolutely in love with his work you know, that kind of thing. So he had to duplicate not only the office, but the building and even replicas of all the people in the building. Mr Conkling himself is in an easy chair on the twelfth story. And? Well gentlemen, as you know, Happy Glades is the outstanding mortuary on earth. And to put it briefly, with the constant explorations of planets and moons and whatnot, our Mr Waldemere hit upon this scheme. Seeking to extend the ideal hereafter to our guests, we bought out this little asteroid. With the vast volume and the tremendous turnover as it were, we got our staff of scientists together and they offered this plan, to duplicate the exact surroundings which the guest most enjoyed in life, assure him privacy, permanence, a very big point as you can see, and all the small things not possible on earth. Why here? Why cart off a million miles or more when the same thing could have been done on Earth? My communication system went bad, I fear, so I haven't heard from the offices in some while. But I am to understand there is a war beginning? That is the idea, Captain. One could never really be sure of oneself down there. What with all the new bombs and things being discovered? Hmm, said Captain Webber. Then too, Mr. Waldemere worried about those new societies, with their dreadful ideas about cremation. You could see what that sort of thing could do to the undertaking business. His plan caught on, however, and soon we were having to turn away guests. And where do you fit in, Mr. Greypool? The little man seemed to blush. He lowered his eyes. I was head caretaker, you see, but I wasn't well. Gastric complaints, liver, heart palpitations, this and that. So I decided to allow them to change me. They turned all manner of machines on my body and pumped me full of fluids. And by the time I got here, why, I was almost, you might say, a machine myself. Fortunately though, they left a good deal of Greypool. All I know is that whenever the film is punctured, I wake and become a machine, do my prescribed duties in a complex way, and the film, the covering that seals in the conditioning. Nothing can get out, nothing can get in, except things like rockets. Then it's self-sealing, needless to say. But to get on, Captain, with all the technical advancements, it soon got to where there was no real work to do here. They threw up the film and coated us in their preservative, or as they put it, Eternifier, and, well, with the exception of my calendar and the communication system, everything's worked perfectly, including myself. No one said anything for a while. Then Captain Webber said, with great slowness, You're lying. This is all a crazy hideous plot. The little man chuckled at the word plot. In the first place, no cemetery or form of cemetery has existed on Earth for how long, Fridden? Mr. Fridden stared at his fingers. Years and years. Exactly. There are communal furnaces now. Mr. Greypool winced. And furthermore, continued the captain, this whole concept is ridiculous. Mr. Chitterwick threw down the pamphlet and began to tremble. 
We should have stayed home, he remarked to a young woman who did not answer. Mr. Graypool, Weber said, I think that you know more than you're saying. You didn't seem very surprised when we learned we weren't the men you expected. You don't seem very surprised now that I tell you that your happy glades and all the people connected with it have been dead for ages. So why the display of interest in our explanations? Why? The faint murmur, a good machine checks and double checks, could be heard from Mr. Graypool, who otherwise said nothing. I speak for my men. We're confused, terribly confused. But whatever this is, we're stuck. Can't you see? All we want is a place to begin again. Captain Webber paused, looked at the others, and went on in a softer tone. We're tired men, Mr. Graypool. We're poorly equipped. But we do have weapons. And if this is some hypnotic kind of trap... The little man waved his hand off-handedly. There are lakes and farms, and all we need to make a new start. More than we'd hoped for. Much more. What had you hoped for, Captain? Something. Nothing. Just escape. But I see no women. How could you begin again as you suggest? Women? Too weak. They would not have lasted. We brought along eggs and machines. Enough for our needs. Mr. Graypool clucked his tongue. Mr. Waldemere certainly did look ahead, he muttered. He certainly did. Will we be honest now? Will you help us? Yes, Captain. I will help you. Let us go back to your rocket. Mr. Graypool smiled. Things will be better there. Captain Webber signaled. They left the building and walked by the foot of a white mountain. They passed a garden with little spotted trees and flowers. A brown desert of shifting sands and a striped tent. They walked by strawberry fields and airplane hangars and coal mines. Tiny yellow cottages, cramped apartments, fluted houses and Tudor houses and houses without description. Past rock pools and a great zoo full of animals that stared out of vacant eyes. And everywhere the seasons changed gently. Crisp autumn, cottony summer, windy spring and winters cool and white. The six men in uniforms followed the little man with the thin hair. They did not speak as they walked, but looked around, stared, craned, wondered. And the old, young, middle-aged, white, brown, yellow people, who did not move, wondered back at the men with their eyes. You see, Captain, the success of Mr. Waldemeyer's plan Captain Webber rubbed his cheek. I don't understand, he said. But you do see, all of you, the perfection here. The quality of eternal happiness which the circular speaks of. Yes, we see that. Here we have happiness and brotherhood. Here there have never been wars or hatred or prejudices. And now, you who are many, and left Earth to escape war and hatred, who were many by your own word, and are now only six. You want to begin life here? Cross breezes ruffled the men's hair. To begin, from the moment of your departure, you had wars of your own, 
killed and hurled mocking prejudice against a race of people not like you, a race who rejected and cast you out into space again, from your own account. No, gentlemen, I'm truly sorry. It may be I have misjudged those of you who are left, or rather, that Happy Glades misjudged you. You may mean well, after all, and, of course, the location of this asteroid was so planned by the board as to be uncharted forever. But, oh, I am sorry. Mr. Greypool sighed. What does he mean by that? asked Mr. Fryden and Lieutenant Peterson. Captain Webber was staring at a herd of cows in the distance. What do you mean you're sorry? demanded Mr. Fridden. Well, Captain Webber! cried Mr. Chitterwick, blinking. Yes, yes. I feel queer. Mr. Goblin clutched at his stomach. So do I. And me. Captain Webber looked back at the fields, then at Mr. Greypool. His mouth twitched in sudden pain. We feel awful, Captain. I'm sorry, gentlemen. Follow me to your ship quickly. Mr. Greypool motioned curiously with his hands and began to step briskly. They circled a small pool where a motionless boy strained toe-high on an extended board, and the day once again turned to night as they hurried past a shadowed cathedral. When they were in sight of the scorched trees, Mr. Milton doubled up and screamed, Captain! Mr. Goblin struck his forehead. I told you! I told you we shouldn't have drunk that wine! Didn't I tell you? It was the wine! We all drank it! He did it! He poisoned us! Follow me! cried Mr. Greypool, making a hurried gesture and breaking into a run. Faster! They stumbled hypnotically through the park, over Mandarin bridges to the rock. Tell them, Captain. Tell them to climb the ladder. Go on up, men. But we're poisoned, sir. Hurry! There's an antidote in the ship. The crew climbed into the ship. Captain, invited Mr. Greypool. Captain Webber ascended jerkily. When he reached the open lock, he turned. His eyes swept over the hills and fields and mountains, over the rivers and houses and still people. He coughed and pulled himself into the rocket. Mr. Greypool followed. You don't dislike this ship, do you? That is, the surroundings are not offensive. No, we don't dislike the ship. I'm glad of that. If only I'd been allowed more latitude. But, but everything functions so well here. No real choice in the matter, actually. No more than the ceiling film. And they would leave me with these human emotions. I see, of course, why the communication system doesn't work. Why my calendar is out of commission. Kind of Mr. Valdemir to arrange for them to stop when his worst fears finally materialized. Are all the men seated? No, no, they mustn't writhe about on the floor like that. Get them to their stations. No, to the stations they would most prefer. And hurry! Captain Webber ordered Mr. Chitterwick to the galley, Mr. Goblin to the engineering chair, and Mr. Frieden to the navigator's room. Sir, what's going to happen? Where's the antidote? Mr. Milton to the pilot's chair. 
The pain will only last another moment or so. It's unfortunately part of the Eternifier, said Mr. Greypool. There, all in order? Good, good. Now, Captain, I see understanding in your face. That pleases me more than I can say. My position is so difficult. But you can see, when a machine is geared to its job, which is to retain permanence on happy glades, well, a machine is a machine. Where shall I put you? Captain Webber leaned on the arm of a little man and walked out to the open lock. You do understand? asked Mr. Graypool. Captain Webber's head nodded halfway down, then stopped. His eyes froze forever upon the city. A pity. The little man with the thin hair walked about the cabins and rooms, straightening, dusting. He climbed down the ladder, shook his head, and started down the path to the wooden house. When he had washed all the empty glasses and replaced them, he sat down in a large leather chair and adjusted himself into the most comfortable position. His eyes stared in waxen contentment at the homely interior, with its lavender wallpaper, needlepoint tapestries, and tidy arrangement. He did not move. Kirby, Weber, and Myers, three men lost. They shared a common wish, a simple one, really. They wanted to be aboard their ship headed for home. And fate, a laughing fate, a practical jokester with a smile that stretched across the stars, saw to it that they got their wish, with just one reservation. The wish came true, but only in the Twilight Zone.